Richard Wilson was driving home one night from college to his parents' home. Despite his usual pre-drive triple-shot latte, Wilson hydroplaned in the rain straight into a cement barricade. Yeah, the car just kind of crumpled in half, and it was the middle of the night and pouring rain. I kind of just kind of stumbled out of the car, and several cars stopped because my headlights were facing the oncoming traffic, so people could tell that, and some people saw my car spinning. And uh, I just kind of walked away from it, luckily, and it just kind of opened my eyes to that my life could have ended right then. That was literally and figuratively a turning point in his life. Today, Wilson helps ultra-wealthy families create and manage their single-family offices. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. I'm joined today by Richard Wilson, CEO and founder of the Family Office Club. Wilson also is the author of four books on family offices. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me here, Chitra. You were an undergraduate student when that accident happened that put you on this path to wealth building, but you always were a budding entrepreneur. How young were you and what was that path? Well, just when I was uh, maybe five to seven years old, my parents would pay me the, you know, a penny per pine cone, pick them up in the yard, or they'd pay me a penny per page uh, to read books. We had Christmas wreath sales in the Boy Scouts. We did lemonade stands. I would go along with my dad to his meetings because he had his own business and I'd sit on his meetings with him. Um, so it was pretty early on that I got exposed to entrepreneurism and I guess capitalism. So I kind of blame my parents for that. <laughs> and and you became more successful at it as you grew old grew older. I mean, you had a lot of failed schemes and scams, but you also had some successful ones. What were those? Both of those? Sure, sure. So um, I had a yard service business and um, had some neighborhood clients for that. I had a radio station, internet advertising business that kind of flopped. Uh, I also had a used textbook business uh, when I was in college. Um, I also had a long distance telephone service business where I'd, I'd call all the parents in the school directory and try to sell them on changing their long distance phone provider uh, to the company I was representing as kind of a, a commission salesperson. So a uh, number of different things. Some worked a little bit, some didn't work at all, um, but I learned a lot at, at every turn. And your used textbook business uh, appears to have been really successful as, as a mother of two kids was given away quite a few textbooks. You probably picked up a bunch of those kinds of textbooks and made a lot of money out of it, didn't you? Yes, yeah. I drove to uh, regional book sales. Like I drove to Arizona and back over a weekend one time. And I'd get textbooks out of trash cans around the university. If I walked by and saw one, I'd buy them from other students at garage sales, at Goodwill, um, at estate sales. Anytime I can buy a textbook for one to three or four dollars, I could usually sell it for eight, ten, twenty-five dollars sometimes. So it was a pretty good cash turnover business, and I built up an inventory of about 7,000 books uh, over a few years doing that in college. So you were 18 or 19, and what were you making making out of this uh, business that you started? Uh, I was doing somewhere between six and 8,000 in revenue pretty consistently, um, and then you know our costs were usually a third or a fourth of that revenue, so it was, it was pretty good money for being in school. And is that seven or eight, 10,000 a month? Yes, that's correct, yeah, per month. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, uh, it really taught me about researching uh, the buy before you actually commit to buy. You can research your inventory before you place that capital down, look up how much it's selling for online, you know, managing inventory, moving inventory if it's not selling, 
uh, then lower the price or whoever has other books posted online, make sure ours is posted as the cheapest available. So the website would push it uh, through eBay or Amazon and buy ours instead of somebody else's. So a bunch of things like that, just kind of business 101 type lessons that you learn better, at least in my case, doing things rather than having a professor teach you theories about them. And what was funny is that I went to Oregon State University for my undergrad and they had a whole entrepreneurial program. They made a big deal about it. But I very specifically remember getting a letter from the dean saying, Richard Wilson, you've been caught trying to start a business in the computer lab within the business school. And if you're caught doing that again, then you could be suspended from the business school for trying to run a business on school property. And I was thinking to myself, and the professors would tease me about it. They're like, yeah, Richard, don't, don't use what we're teaching you. That would be horrible. <laughs> that is such a, such a statement on, on our educational system today. For sure. I mean, it's completely backwards, right? I should get extra credit. Like I should be able to skip a class if I started a business, you'd think, you know? <laughs> they should, they probably could have learned a lot from you, you know, because you were doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was still learning the very basics, but you know, I think it should be encouraged, at least within the business school. I could see within other schools, maybe uh, it not wanting to be encouraged. But, um, you know, I, I think that uh, some people who might be able to give the most money back to a school as an alumni would be the people who are starting businesses in the computer lab. So I never even return their phone calls when they ask for a donation because I learned more on my own, you know, the hard way. And I got hassled when I actually tried to implement the advice I was being taught at school. So, so how old were you when you had that accident and, and, and what were your thoughts as you kind of walked away from that, that wreck, you know, your car was wrecked and, but you were alive and unhurt. Yeah, the car just kind of crumpled in half and it was the middle of the night and pouring rain. I kind of just kind of stumbled out of the car and several cars stopped because my headlights were facing the oncoming traffic. So people could tell that and some people saw my car spinning and uh, I just kind of walked away from it luckily and it just kind of opened my eyes to that my life could have ended right then. And I think that it made me look around and just realize I was just kind of bumping through college and just kind of bored out of my mind. So it was, it was kind of a turning point of going from taking the normal 13, 14 credits, you know, a term to getting permission from the school to do uh, 21 credits, 23 credits a term and, and just try to graduate a year early so I can get into the workforce and do something. And so, uh, so at the time, were you working or did you have a lot of money when this accident happened? No, no, I didn't have uh, a lot of money. I was working for a uh, technology company, uh, and it was like an internship, helping them with a capital raise that they were doing, just research on investors, et cetera, but definitely didn't have a lot of money. Um, and I think it was just, you know, I was in a small college town called Corvallis outside of Portland, Oregon. So I think I just wanted to get out of there because I just looked around and there's really nothing to do in the college town uh, that was too productive. So I was just ready to move on. And so, but once you actually started uh, working, you were, you started to make quite a bit of money compared to the average uh, person who's got an entry-level job. Yes, yeah. So uh, there's two experiences that came from that. One is deciding that I wanted to get a job working with websites and website development, and I didn't have any offers or inroads to that. So I called every company in the Yellow Pages. Only one called me back out of the 16 or 18 that I left voicemails for, and that one um, gave me a job, and it was a pretty well-paying job um, for being still, you know, still in school, still finishing school. So that taught me a lot, and it taught me that if you're willing to put in that at work, you can uncover opportunities that others 
would never find. So when I graduated from school and the average graduate was getting offers of 36 to 44,000 a year, um, I decided to call everybody in the Portland, Oregon Chamber of Commerce. And luckily I connected with one who ran a consulting business doing risk consulting. And she said, well, we usually want someone with seven years of audit experience for this role, um, you know, cause it pays hundred dollars an hour. Uh, and I said, well, just try me out. And if I don't do well in the first day, you can let me go and I'll prove it to you that then I'm a good hire. And so uh, she gave me a chance and it worked out. And my first year out of school, you know, I was making 70 some, 80,000 80, a year. And then my second year out of school, I was making six figures. And um, I think it was because of, you know, reaching out to many, many prospects until a really great opportunity came up. What did that process teach you? Really that you create your own luck. And if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and do the tedious and the hard work and kind of grind it out, that you can find those anomaly opportunities and you don't have to accept the average or the moderate or the mediocre. So from that point, I always tried to figure out how can I do something that's more unique or niche specific or, you know, what is the plan regardless of how much hard work it'll take. If I know that that will lead to finding some anomaly opportunity, then that's what I wanted to focus on. So how did you end up going from there to being in the uh, family office business? Sure. Well, uh, risk consulting is about as exciting as it sounds. Uh, so it paid for my MBA uh, in cash, and I just got that done in the evenings while working a lot. Uh, but then I looked around and I said, who else is going to pay you know, a 22, 23-year-old $100,000 a year? Pretty much nobody, uh, except for in industries where you get paid based on your results only, and it doesn't matter if you have gray hair or not, or a decade of experience. And I, I whittled that down to commercial real estate brokerage, and raising capital. So I got job offers in the commercial real estate space, but decided instead to move to Boston to try to work at a capital raising firm. And again, I had to offer to work for free. They wanted someone with seven years experience. So I said, let me prove myself. And he let me work one day a week, then two days a week free, then three days a week free. And then he started paying me to work three days a week and then started paying me to work full time. And while doing that, we couldn't raise capital from small investors or the big institutional investors. So I realized I needed to find some in-between types. So I called wealth management firms that served uh, the wealthy and ultra-wealthy and found that some of them identified as a family office. And I said to myself, oh, okay, that's who I should be calling on to raise capital. Forget everyone else that I could call on as an investor. I'm only going to call them. Well, I found that was near impossible because there were not very many, very many family offices back then in 2007. Uh, there weren't any trail guides, there weren't many books on the topic. There were no podcasts, no websites on it, really. So I just started sharing what I was learning and um, started getting 100 hits a day on the website, just posting one little blog post a week, and then started getting 500, 1,000 hits a day, and I got on the front page of the Boston Globe, and then I started writing more often, and then it just took off, you know, at that point. And uh, so, and then you had your own website, right? Right. So then I, I purchased familyoffices.com early on. Uh, I started a LinkedIn group early on before LinkedIn was a big thing. And I spoke over 150 times in 14 countries at other people's family office events. Um, and at one point when the website started taking off, my boss said, you know, you have to shut down this website because it's getting too much press attention and seems like a distraction from your job. Uh, you've got to shut that down or leave the company. Uh, so I left the company and while looking for my next job, the website started making more money than the past job was paying me. And one of my friends at the time said, you know, Richard, you have something here. You should run with it. So I just kind of doubled down and started writing four articles a day instead of 
uh, two or three a week. And then things really kind of took off. We started hosting our own events. I got a book deal with Wiley. And then we just, just kept on reinvesting and providing content, really. And, and um, as you started to move into this business, was it initially hard to kind of be in the company of people that wealthy? Is it kind of a different way of thinking and being? What was different for you? And, and how did you go about building this, uh, this company? I mean, you talk about, uh, if you talk about imposter syndrome, I mean, uh, at the beginning, I literally knew nothing. Um, I was doing research to figure things out. I had only done some angel investor help for a technology company in college and then been around my dad, who was on the nonprofit fundraising side of things. But the most challenging thing was at the beginning, I was just researching and sharing what I was learning. And in the first year of doing so, a lot of non-family offices would reach out to me asking for advice on how to reach them and how to talk to them and how to sell products to them. But then what was really interesting to me was that after just one year, the family offices themselves were offering to hire me as a consultant. They wanted my help for setting up their family office. And I thought to myself, you run a family office. Don't you know a lot more than I do? <laughs> um, so it, that was interesting. But the reality was they only speak to a dozen of their peers per year or maybe three dozen if they're hyper-connected. And I was speaking at a dozen plus conferences a year and meeting and talking to family offices every single day. So I spoke to hundreds per year. And so I had a better view of the forest, even though they had a better view of the minutiae and the day-to-day portfolio management, and they saw value in that. So the first two, three years was really, you know, stumbling around in the dark, sharing what I was learning. You know, the next five years, you know, I had a decent, moderate level of knowledge and a pretty good network. Um, and now 12, almost 13 years later, you know, we've, we've really learned a lot about this specific space because it's such a niche industry. And, and how does it all work? I mean, what do you do for these people and how does it work? Sure. So we help families set up a family office um, so that if they have a liquidity event or say they're cash flowing in a business at one, two, three, five million plus a year. Um, if they're worth 15, 20 million plus or $100 million plus in many cases, then we help set up the solution, which means get their family office quality solution providers in place. And what makes the ultra wealthy unique in investing is that most of the high net worth trust their capital with a wealth manager. They might have a single family residential property or two as rental properties or Airbnb rentals. But the ultra wealthy like to invest in commercial real estate and other types of cash flowing real estate investments and also invest in operating businesses, not just as an angel investor but maybe a controlling stake or buying multiple businesses into a portfolio. And that's very unique about them. But what I found is that the whole wealth management industry, you know, right after this, I'm going to speak at a financial planning event downtown actually about this exact topic. The whole wealth management space is built on diversify to an extreme, put your money in public markets, find the fund manager, spread it all around into non-correlated things. But all of the ultra wealthy, almost all of them, invest directly into real estate and operating businesses, and they're under-advised in doing so, which means they basically have a ton of advisory and the public market exposure, but figure out what real estate they should be investing in and how to source those deals. Their wealth advisor really isn't built to help with that. They want you to point-click allocate to a REIT or a real estate fund on their platform so the report comes out nicely and they don't have to leave their chair and their office, but that's not what the ultra-wealthy do. So I think that's really important to bring up. And what was it like for you to be in this world and how did it change you as an entrepreneur? Um, you know, I have to say at some points you just start comparing yourselves to these people. Like I have several clients at 240 million, 400 million, you know, 700 million net worth, et cetera. The slackers. 
Yeah. Well, sometimes it makes you feel like, God, again, what have I been doing with my life compared to these people who have uh, made such an impact? And it's not just about the money. You know, one of my clients employs 2,800 people. That's a lot of families he's supporting. Um, it's a lot of positive impact that he's made on the world and value he's created for all of them and all of his executives. So that's one thing that if you're not careful, you can get sucked into you know, kind of a negative comparison, but they are the winners in the game of capitalism. None of my clients won the lottery. None of them inherited their wealth. And they've done it through creating value and being very smart, shrewd business people. So I think that the most exciting part of it that keeps it interesting to me is I'm always learning by hearing my clients' stories and figuring out which of those stories and lessons and insights could I be using or how do I cross-pollinate a great idea that I heard in Berlin at a family office event for one of my clients in San Diego or Miami, et cetera. And, and is there anything that kind of ties all of these families uh, or individuals together and the way they approach the notion of wealth or wealth building? Yes, I mean, I think that one thing that ties them together is that most people want a family office if they're first generational or early second generation wealth because they don't believe in having full control and managing their own destiny to creating that wealth for 5, 10, many times 20, 30 years. And then once that wealth is created, say, okay, let's trust Mr. Private Banker, put all of our capital on their platform, uh, pay whatever fees they are, whether we can understand those fees or not, and hope they don't lose our capital. It's just not in their DNA. They have fun. They have passion. They feel like they're giving back to society by managing the business the right way. And they're adding value. And they get excited by it. So one thing that I've realized that's common among the first generation families is that they don't have to work if they don't want to. And because of that, they might work even harder than they did before. Because now they're not working on stuff because they have a mortgage over their head or they're worried about the college uh, admission price for their kids. They're only working on things that they're very excited about because they get to say no to everything else that's not super exciting to them. And they are doing it at a higher level to help their son or daughter get into the business or help create a legacy or to help their 2,000 employees. So um, I think that's one commonality is that want for you know, control um, so they can continue to create value and not just to hand it all over and you know, trust a third party to manage it all for them. Looking back at your career, are there one or two examples or stories of families uh, or, um, you know, individuals who really kind of influenced your way of thinking? Uh, yes, yes, definitely there were. Um, you know, one individual, uh, his name was Doug, you know, just encouraged me at the beginning to really double down on what was kind of a, a white space, kind of an empty space, which was the family office industry. And it worked so well. And I almost, I remember the exact moment he told me that and where I was walking and I sat down in a chair and actually seriously considered starting the business. And if he hadn't have said that, you know, I don't think I would have ever started my business. That really influenced me greatly. And ever since then, we've tried to only spend time in the white spaces between where competitors are, where there's growing demand or lots of demand, but not really anybody serving that marketplace. Like our our company's family office club, but the work we do for families and helping them source great direct investments is sent to millionaire advisors because sent to millionaire means $100 million plus. And I just feel like that's another white space is serving, you know, those 55,000, $100 million plus net worth families globally and, and the other ultra wealthy that do direct investments. So that, that was one that made a real, real mark. Um, and then another one was from my mentor, uh, Evan Pagan, you know, early on, 
he really taught me to kind of move the free line in whatever industry I was in and give away more than all of the competition does combined in terms of thought leadership and advice. And just like you doing this podcast, the more you give away and contribute, the more you get back in return in terms of value. So to give away great ideas that people can actually benefit from. And I saw him do that in his businesses. So I really believed that he believed in it. And that, that combined with um, a mentor, Jeffrey Gittimer, uh, who taught me to give away information to a target audience. And he said, within seven years, you'll be a global expert on that and people will seek you out. Uh, those two people combined really changed my entire life because my whole business is based on that whole premise. And, uh, you know, that's really wonderful. And I think uh, a lot of people don't get that. You know, if you go somewhere where no one else is going, that's where you can make your mark instead of just following the pack. Right. I couldn't, I think that's like the most important line of this whole interview. And I think so many people miss that. We have 6,500 people that come through our 30 live events each year in the family office club. And we do some workshops on investor relations and how to run a family office. Like last week in Singapore we did. And I always reemphasize that it doesn't matter if you're raising capital or if you're running a family office, you know, focusing on that area where you're strongest and there's not a lot of competition is just so critical. So looking back at, uh, at your life, right, you at a very young age began to understand money in a way that very few kids do, but also very few parents take the time to, to invest in their kids, this, this practical knowledge of how money works, what money can buy, what is the true value of money, how, does how do time and money go together and things like that. And so I think that there are a lot of lessons in your story for parents and for kids growing up without a true sense of money, which is really what you need to have in life to succeed. Yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, there's two things that come to mind as you say that. One is that if there's any wealthy families listening to this, I think a huge mistake if you want to instill entrepreneurism don't put your son and daughter in charge of your foundation where they're taught just to give away your money. It just teaches them that you have money coming out of your nose and that it grows on trees. And you're teaching them the opposite of creating value and creating uh, money and wealth. Uh, giving away wealth is a great thing to do. There's nothing wrong with it. But if that's their only exposure to money, then you're not teaching them the values that made you successful as an entrepreneur. Um, and the second thing I've learned just by being around all this is that uh, you know, my kids went to visit our friends in Atlanta and they had this little mini Tesla car. It's like an electric car for kids and two kids can ride on it. And they had the time of their life driving in. They said, we want to buy one. And I said, okay, well, uh, why don't you buy yourself one? And so we started doing lemonade stands and we we're going to do it right in front of our home, but only, you know, five cars an hour go by our home, maybe 10 cars an hour. So instead we went in front of the Starbucks um, near our office place in, in Key Biscayne here where I live. And, you know, we usually bring in somewhere between 50 and $60 each day. We do the lemonade stand. So they're up to $180 saved so far, and they're saving up to buy the Tesla themselves. And we have a great time doing it. They start cheering for lemonade stand, and they love it. And they, they drink the lemonade, obviously, and eat half the snacks we're supposed to be selling. And, um, you know, we have fun, and I think it's teaching them to, to count the money, and they've got a cash register and a bell to ding. And, you know, it's just a good family time, and it's also teaching them, you know, business at the same time. And I think the lesson in it is you don't have to be really wealthy to to understand those lessons. Anybody can uh, can teach those lessons to their kids and and to learn those lessons themselves. Right, right, yeah, for sure. And I think it's even more important if you're not ultra wealthy or really wealthy. Um, 
you know, one could say that if you're really wealthy, well, then the next generation could maybe float without a lot of these lessons. Um, so I think that, you know, these are things that if you're entrepreneurial at all, uh, could be really helpful in passing that on to the next generation, whether your business does $200,000 a year in revenue or 2 million or 20 million, you know, I think it's, it, they're important lessons, you know, in my opinion, at least. Looking back at that young man who walked away from that, uh, wrecked car, do you have any closing thoughts on your life's trajectory from that point on? You know, I had one more that didn't come up that uh, wasn't as traumatic, but I was on top of the Marina Sands Resort in Singapore looking at all the buildings. And I was drinking uh, a Corona with one of my friends who happened to be in the town at the same time. And I just looked at these buildings and thought, man, I've done nothing with my life. Again, I had that same kind of feeling of like, what am I doing? Like, I'm playing such a small game compared to people who build these buildings in downtown Singapore. And, um, you know, I stopped drinking for one month after that just to see if it would give me more energy. And that was eight years ago, and I've never drank again. Uh, and I think that that turning those turning points where you see to get to the next level, you just need to have more integrity, which means like, in my mind, integration between everything, like the right people on your team, the right values, the right food going in your mouth, you live in the right spot, you and the friends that support you you know, family that's supportive. And the more that everything is a lot aligned and integrated, then the more that you're going to move through the world and get to that higher level of success and fulfillment. And the more friction there is and the more frustration there is and less progress. So I think that uh, all of those lessons have kind of taught me that integrity and integration of everything is more important than anything else for, for my life, at least. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me here, Chitra. Appreciate it. Richard Wilson is CEO and founder of the Family Office Club and the author of four books on family offices. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.